Well, welcome out there to all of our listeners. It's great to have everybody with us today. Um, this was a podcast we've been looking forward to for a while, and we're really excited to be able to have Patrick joining us from Humber Teaching NHS Foundation Trust, as well as my lovely co-host, Dan. Dan, how are you? I'm all right, Cicely. Fine, thanks. I'm, I hope you are as well. It's a real pleasure, isn't it, to have Patrick with us? A very special guest this morning. Patrick and I go way back, having worked together on and off for many, many years. So great that you can join us, Patrick. And uh, what a varied career Patrick's had. I always remember one little story that Patrick at one point had the most valuable key in Hull. And that was because he was the prison medical officer. And I remember when I visit the prison, I remember Patrick saying to me, if I lose this key, it will cost a million pounds to replace it because all the locks in the prison will have to be changed. <laughs> so what a responsibility that was. So welcome, Patrick. We're really looking forward to, uh, it's nice to see you again as well, Anna. So I think I saw you at the Academy, didn't I? Maybe a couple of weeks yes, ago. I did, it's lovely to see you. Yeah, great. So um, we'll crack on Sicily, shall we? Absolutely. Uh, so Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here and thank you for your patience. I must tell your listeners that I uh, missed the previous chance to have this interview because of a family problem. And just to thank how kind you were, Cicely and the team, that were very understanding of that. So I'll, I'll do my best to make up for, 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 for not being able to do the last one. Uh, no apologies necessary. We all appreciate sometimes things come up in life and we have to be able to take priority, particularly with our families and the lo- those that we love. Thank you. No problem. Anna, do you have our first question for today? So why did you choose to work in the healthcare sector? It's a really, really good question, Anna, because everybody's going to have a different kind of reasoning and I fall into the camp that always wanted to be a doctor and the reason I had that kind of belief looking back is that I grew up in a little nursing home in Hull. My parents moved to Hull in 1958 and took over a small nursing home near the city centre. So I basically grew up in a, in a healthcare environment and I was treated so well by all the patients who are very posh elderly ladies in the main who loved having a little child running around the home and I got sweets and looked after. It was, it was a lovely environment to go in. And I felt that this was where I wanted to be. So I always, when anybody asked me as a child, what do you want to be? Oh, I'm going to be a doctor. There was never any question. However, the problem was when I got to medical school and I realized suddenly with a shock, actually what being a doctor might be all about. It came at me like an express train because I'd never even questioned it. And that's something important to bear in mind. So I think people like yourselves at school who can't quite decide what they want to do and not sure that isn't a bad thing because it gives you a chance to really try different things out take a lesson from me have a think about it because I just never even questioned it I was always going to be a doctor and I literally discovered suddenly in the third year of medical school oh my god what am I doing here (laughs) (laughs) where did you train Patrick in Leicester medical school yeah, I was. I was. It was a fabulous medical school, I must say, um, and it was one of one of the new ones. So wow. Leicester was one in nineteen about about seventy seven, seventy eight started, and I joined in seventy nine. I think I was about the second or third year. 
Oh, right. So it was a new medical school then. I didn't realise it was that recent. Yeah, totally new. And I went to interview for Edinburgh as well, but I didn't... I, and I didn't go to the interview for Edinburgh, actually, because the interview I had at Leicester was so good. I just thought, no, I do want to go to Leicester. And I, I, I was. Just, I went to Edinburgh. Ah, right. Well, there you go. <laughs> but we didn't get an interview, strangely. No, but Leicester did interviews, and it was <laughs> lovely. I, I went down on my motorbike, which greatly impressed the, the people there. Oh, what, did it? Yeah. There's another tip, Anna. Yeah. Uh, we'll but go with always wear a helmet, just in case. Yes, yeah, no, just in case any of our readers or our listeners decide that they're not going to wear one. But we were impressed by my independent spirit, I think. Um, but yeah, no, I went to Leicester and it was fabulous. And uh, that, that I said, in terms of why did I want to be it, I literally, I took a year off after that period. I was in the second, I just completed the first two years and in Leicester you didn't really do much work on the ward until the third year and it was during the third year that it really made me question everything about that decision and I in the end I took a year off and in those days that was like oh my god if you take a year off you'll never come back and uh, but I just couldn't continue I just felt I could even you know it, it was like a real wake-up call but it was the best decision I made because when I did go back I had carefully thought it through and decided for my own reasons that I wanted to do it, not from what I decided as a baby. Well, Anna, you have been really dead set that you really want to be a doctor and you came to the Medical Academy with that very firm doctor hat already on. Has part of the Medical Academy program made you question if there's other career options for you or has it helped you to solidify what your career ambitions are? Like what that expectation is going to be by entering that workforce, by entering that job, by knowing that job role even more. Yes. I think, Anna, it's really important to sort of acknowledge in a way that how competitive it was. Because one of the things that Patrick sort of alluded to, and certainly my experience and friends of mine, is that we would struggle now to get into medical school for all sorts of reasons. You know, if you went and said, oh, I'm going to do two years and I'm going to have a year off, or you did it all, all that sort of way. The competition now is so much higher than it was previously that I think it makes it the whole application process more difficult because you know you're up against you know for every applicant for every place there may be ten applicants so I think having a having a, a narrative about why you want to be, do why you want to be a doctor rather than why you want to study medicine is really important because we need doctors that's what we need not necessarily people who want to study medicine if you see what i mean we need doctors and getting that sort of narrative around why you want to do it and getting a really clear thing i think is a really important thing to do to spend time thinking about would you agree patrick i think that's i think it's important yeah absolutely i think at, at the heart my reasons for wanting to be a doctor were good ones but what i didn't appreciate is really how the NHS operated and to me it was a real clash because I had rose-tinted spectacles about what the NHS would be like and I thought it was this amazing wonderful place where everybody would get better and nothing wrong happened and people were all fabulous and you know it was I, I, you know it was very naive of me but I didn't kind of get my exposure had been very limited really in this little nursing home space and you know, my GP was lovely and, and I, I kind of had very limited getting onto the hospitals 
and seeing how it worked, I had to readjust. And I, and I think anything that's done like at the academy to expose you to what it's really like in the hospital environment and in healthcare is a good thing. And I would strongly support that. And if you can get any early experience, because don't get me wrong, my colleagues are fabulous. I had a little mishap just now when I couldn't get a charger and I knew that one of them would help me. You know, that this is it. Your colleagues are so important to you and the working environment is fabulous. It's not my colleagues or anything like that that's a problem. It's the system of how the NHS operates. It is sometimes, it just doesn't really make that much sense. You know, it is clunky and, and I think you've got to be prepared for that. And I found it difficult. I, I, I basically had to re... I had dreams that I had to then fit to reality. And that, that was painful, but ultimately it was good. Yeah, it served me good stead to have that. And I think it's, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, the heart and soul of the NHS is brilliant. I love it to bits, but the actual practical day-to-day, -day, sometimes it doesn't do as I think it should. Yeah, and I think what Patrick's saying as well is, and I know because I've worked with him for a long time, is that there are there are bits of the NHS that you have to go along with because that's the way that the system operates. But it's really, really important, Anna, to look up in your own work environment experience of how you individually can make a difference within that system, no matter how well or badly it functions. If there's one thing I'd say about Patrick over all these years is he has really, really worked hard to make an individual difference with his patients or whichever group of patients he's looked after within an environment that sometimes worked and sometimes hasn't worked, but it hasn't interfered with that fundamental belief and desire to do the right thing. And that's what we as doctors, despite, and sometimes I think it appears that doctors now get overwhelmed by how the system's malfunctioning, but you've still got to identify how you can individually make a difference with patients. And that's one of the great challenges and actually one of the wonderful things about it, I think, in why it's so rewarding. So we've talked a lot about why working for the NHS can be really rewarding and particularly going into the vocation of a health and social care career and the difference that you can make to the people that you meet. But we've also started to be able to talk about why working in Hull is such an amazing opportunity. Anna, what do you think? What a great tee up for the next question. <laughs> She's good at this in Sicily, you know, she's great. <laughs> here on the one of the hospital wards and I love the way that you can work as a team with everybody that's around on the ward just to even if it makes somebody smile that is already I suppose a step up on the ladder to improving quality of life so why did you decide Hull as a city rather than any other city you to practice? Again Anna it's it's a it's a very good question I'm pleased that you're getting onto the wards already because that fits into my last thing about why I want to do it. I was born as a, a, in Hull and my parents moved here when, when they were setting up this business. So it was my home city, but you know, the funny thing is that I always felt a little bit of an outsider in the city of Hull. Um, my family background, my mum was a nurse who migrated from Ireland uh, in her early 20s to complete her training as a nurse because there was no jobs in Ireland. And she met my father, who is a, an engineer down in London. And so when they moved to Hull, because this is where the property came up to, to build a business as a nursing home, which is what my mum wanted to do, she had worked as a midwife in London 
in a very deprived area and she got interested in children's kind of looking after you she worked in a children's home in near London and that's where she met my dad as a nurse and then they decided to move up to Hull to open a business for as a nursing home she liked the independence I think and running running her business herself and what they what my dad did he he saw an advert in a newspaper and he came up on the train and he bought the nursing home out. <laughs> well, not, he had the money but you know he put the deposit down and said right this is where we're going to be and he came back and told my mum that you know we've, we've got a, a place and she moved up here and, and then she did all the work <laughs> to get the business going dad felt he'd done the job then and he he kind of stepped back a little bit and my mum brought us up and ran the business so um I got to know Hull as a bit of a, a rebel, really, as, a, as an independent person, because my mum worked really long hours and uh, my dad didn't really work. He was like a gentleman who, 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 who was free to do as he wished. And um, so I had plenty of time to explore Hull and I used to go around it on my bicycle. And at the time there was, it was full of slum areas because Hull got heavily bombed in the war. And I was really fascinated by these streets that were just dilapidated and empty houses and old stuff. And I loved graveyards as well. So I don't know if you know Springbank Cemetery on Springbank, it's full of really old graves. Well, that was like, a play area to me because we lived close to the city there wasn't much greenery in Hull so I got a love of exploring outside and later on as I got older I became aware of the beauty around Hull the seaside particularly I know that somebody Dr York uh, mentioned it when she was talking uh, the psychologist about the seaside she wouldn't move away the sea's been so important and she came from Leicester and moved to Hull and said she liked the sea and I can fully understand that I didn't like it in Leicester for one reason it was too far from the sea and I love the wolds I don't know if you've been up walking on them but the Yorkshire wolds are so unspoiled and lovely um, so when I got the opportunity to come back and complete my training in Hull and then become a doctor in Hull it was a no-brainer because my family were around I had children and I think the importance of having a network of people and family has really stuck with me. So I've really tried to build that in Hull and I did miss it when I was a child that I didn't have that network. And so I've seen it as in my life as important to build a network. And that's why I wouldn't think of moving away. It'd be like too much, you know, we, mm. we moved to Hull, set up a, a business, set up a family, set up a home. And that's so important. networking is so very important and being a doctor is like having a network to make people better and I think that's possibly one of the most rewarding things that you can do for a living but what else do you really enjoy about your job or what do you enjoy most about what you do? Uh, it's, it's so easy to add uh, it's it's being uh, with the patients in wherever I see them and, and funnily enough I don't necessarily see them in surgeries anymore because my job's now out in the community visiting people at home with profound and multiple learning disabilities so I've kind of I've been through so many jobs but the consistent thing that's always been if you like the bit that makes me feel good at the end of the day and what is the rewarding part is definitely the time spent with patients 
and their families and the people who care for them. It's like uh, having your batteries charged up. It's, it's just such a privilege to be a doctor. I, I'm so lucky to have that. And people are still very welcoming and the pleasure you get from meeting so many people and their, their lives impress me so much. They give me inspiration and it makes me really appreciate being alive really every day to meet families who are struggling so much with, with almost sometimes having almost nothing and the great adversity and how they smile and just keep going and they're happy. It really is an inspiration. Everything else, I'm so lucky that I have that. Um, so being a doctor to me is, is a privilege and I'm very lucky. The bits that I don't enjoy so much, I guess, are how clunky things can be when you're trying to support people. It, it sometimes takes so much time to get the communications right. Dan will know as being a, a GP, the computer systems don't talk to each other. I'm working in a community <laughs> trust. The, the hospital commuter system, the community trust and the GP system just don't communicate with each other. And that kind of network of like knowledge about people is really, really not good. I'm really pleased and I, I beg you today, if you haven't already done it, get on the NHS app, use the digital side of it, you know, because I, I think it's wonderful that you've now got an opportunity through the NHS app to actually start to take part in your own records and I've been promoting locally with my patients to try and get them access to their records, get their carers to get something called proxy access so they can interact with their, their records because I just don't understand this system where people don't have their own records. Yeah, it's in, in maternity care as a GP, we, people held their own maternity records and that was absolutely vital to their care. So they'd bring their little paper record. It was a three-fold cardboard thing and would write down how they were doing, blood pressure, urine check, everything. And then they took it to the antenatal clinic and they would write on it and they'd bring it back. And you know what? It was fabulous. It was. But we've lost that in some, although they still do have a shared care record. But it should be for everybody. So that's one of the frustrations and I'm deeply committed to trying to get the record system working better. That's an interesting, really interesting yeah. point, Patrick. I hadn't really thought of it as to whether we should. I mean, the whole digitalization of the NHS agenda should be, so there's a whole cohort of new people coming through who only who have learned to access general practice through digital means. Because, you know, as well as I the older generation, they just used to walk into the practice. They would physically just walk in and make an appointment. If only had telephone, yeah. people didn't like that. They really didn't like that when that came in. And then with COVID, we went to a non-face-to-face -face remote access. And a lot of people who were used to just walking in couldn't do it. So they felt disenfranchised and disempowered. But younger people who previously had a lot of trouble getting in because they were busy working or going to school or college or whatever, found that much more helpful. And Patrick's right in that, if we had a, it's something that we ought to think about Sicily actually, whether we should start to look at it as part of the curriculum or just an add-on or whatever, to get people up to speed with how you access the NHS. Because what tends to happen is people just sort of try and access it when they're in an emergency. And what I used to say to people, Anna, was, do you know where your spare tire is in your car? And the people say, well, actually, I don't know whether I've got one. Well, what are you going to do if you have a puncture? Well, I don't know. Well, can I suggest you go to your car, 
first of all, look and see if you've got a spare tire. The second thing is work out how to change it. And if you don't want to do that, join an organization that'll do it for you, the AA. Oh yeah, I think that's really sensible. It's exactly the because when you're ill and stressed, you don't make great decisions. And so that's not the time to find out how to contact the NHS. You ought to know how to do it, learn how to do it when you're well, then you'll know what to do in an emergency. I think that goes back to a lot of like the promotional campaigns where they're trying to be able to get people to use like the 111 service mm. instead of just using a 999 service to be able to help direct that. And there's lots of radio ads out about that and lots of, um, I think, brochures or leaflets and things mm. like that that are promoted mm. within the GP surgeries as well. But I mean, I definitely think that that, that is one thing that for ambitious people like Anna that are in the Medical Health and Social Care Academy, they are going to experience, I think, a lot of IT changes, yeah. a lot of policies and procedures having to be able to deal with IT. We've seen that come about in terms of the use of social media and trying to be able to make sure that they're still demonstrating those professional codes of conduct while using things appropriately and that that age will continue to change and it probably will continue to change and make an impact to healthcare. And Patrick, one of the things that you've now mentioned in terms of being able to share those records, that there there probably will be a new way that will come about that will join all of those different facets together to have one strong patient record so that everybody does have access to it. So, so really it'll be, Sicily, I'll tell you what it'll be. Oh, yeah, it'll be me. chipped, like your pet's chipped. Oh. So you'll have a chip put in and then when you go to see the doctor, he'll have a chip reader and he'll stick it on the back of your neck and it'll and he'll, it'll it'll access all your medical records. Then it'll update it before you leave. So you I mean, will have your medical records implanted <laughs> under your skin. And you can't, I'm you can slightly never lose fearful of, of the sci-fi <laughs> nature of all of this. However, I appreciate that technology. Are, well, that technology already exists. Um, I was watching a TV program recently about somebody that had a microchip inserted into their hand and that's how they opened and closed and unlocked and locked their front door. Really? So, yeah. Oh my so, goodness. I mean, I the technology is there, kind of worms there, but there is a can of worms involved in that and that goes into consent and how oh, do you log consent does. with that and does. a Absolutely. multitude of different things. So, I guess we'll say watch this space, listeners. Yeah. What that's a contradiction in terms. Watch this space, listeners. But oh, yes. I think there is there is an issue about digital access, and mm. uh, you've mentioned it, Dan. That some people like it and some people don't. Yeah. I think we should try and help people. So I, you know, just a simple one was this NHS one one one. My my daughter needed to to get in touch. There was a problem. They they, 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 they rang me for advice, and I said, oh, you you do need to go for NHS one one one. I said, but go on the website instead because it's much better than the telephone. So she went on the web and she was filling in the answers and. Um, Within like five, ten minutes, she triggered an algorithm response and she got a call straight through from mm. the uh, from the uh, NHS 111 team that went through and talked her through what she needed to do. Now, that experience, she turned around to me and said, Daddy, the last time I did that on the phone, it was awful. It, it took hours to get through. It was a room. I said, yeah, it's much easier on the web. So it's just a little tip, you know, to, to pass on to your family and to try yourself next time. You need NHS 111. Try it on the web and see where you get and maybe as part of your learning, compare it with trying to do it through um, the phone. You know, mm -hmm. maybe do an experiment. If you ever, if anybody in your family ever needs to do it, just try to both of them and see what you come up with. See, Patrick and I, Anna, were taught in an analog world where we had sort of real patients in front of us or we had a body to dissect or all this sort of stuff, or frogs to exp experiment on. 
it's not like that anymore. I mean, the challenges for you when you get to medical school will be around, as I've said before, when I came to the academy around doctors won't have the monopoly on knowledge. You know, everybody's got access to the knowledge that you will have access to. Too. What will the role of artificial intelligence be in the diagnosis and treatment management of, of illnesses and whatever? So the core STEM sciences like, you know, chemistry, physics, biology, that sort of thing. There'll be other disciplines which will need to be learned and mastered for to be successful in the field of medicine. I mean, you know, now you can go through a whole, I went through a whole health, massive health intervention about a year or so ago. I was never touched by a human all the way through it. It was a scan or a robot or whatever it was, untouched by human hands. And that's sort of the future. Anyway, what's your, you've got another question looming. Slightly off the topic of the questions that we have today, do you think the use of artificial technology within medicine really will be beneficial in most ways and it will evolve exponentially, I should say, to solve multiple issues? I mean, of course, there is currently the idea that even if so, um, doctors and surgeons will also need to be present to add their own little details. Or are you of the belief that in fact, healthcare will be purely dominated by intelligence and artificial intelligence? Thanks, Anna. That's a really, really good question as well. But I definitely feel, fortunately, that we're still going to have a job. And technology, you know, as somebody said, it's only as good as the stuff that's put into it. And um, it's absolutely true. I mean, the disaster that is, is like the NHS computer system, the debacle, the billions that have been spent on it, it just shows that ultimately humans, you know, make mistakes. And I and I I don't think that machines will necessarily fix all of that. We can't rely on them to do that. And I think that they're a tool. And I, and I don't subscribe to the idea that we're going to end up like uh, on Star Trek, which, you know, the mm. Scotty beams you, beams you with a machine and then I, I think it's always going to be a tool because humans are so, so complex. We, we're not even beginning to, to really grasp their complexity and their brain is just unbelievably complex. And uh, the computers still struggle to get there. But uh, in my day-to-day -day life, I, I do value technology and how useful it can be. But just to give you a brief example, like we've got fantastic scanners that can look inside you, MRI scan, CT scan. And the, I spoke to a consultant recently because we're trying to discover if somebody's constipated, you know, because it's hard to tell if they've got a learning disability, how bad the constipation is. And this, this very friendly radiologist explained to me that really CT scans are not very good at it because the range of normality is so vast that you know, even having a scan and looking at the pictures and everything, and with her experience, she says she would very, very rarely diagnose constipation on a scan because it's so difficult to be sure that it's not just their normal. And it takes a lot of judgment like that. And you know, you need to have trust. You're dealing with life mm. and death situations. And this is where I value, we mentioned it before, having that network, having that person, you can never just look at the test. You've got to be with the patient. You must, must be careful that it, when, when as a doctor, that you don't just rely on machines and tests because it's always in the context of the person. Exactly. And in fact, 
we have a little rule about it is that if you ordered a test you should be it yourself i do you know obviously these gps we can't always do that we rely on somebody else to help us but really genuinely it's an important point it's always in the context of the person i mean the other thing just to pick up on the points that Patrick's mentioned is what you've got to remember Anna is that the majority machines are really good for doing repetitive accurate tasks they don't become ill necessarily they don't have the shakes they don't have a sleepless night blah blah it doesn't really matter if it's been it'll still perform in the same way however the particularly in primary care in general practice the majority of patients that come to see the doctor are not ill they think they're ill so they don't need a machine. They need somebody to look at them, listen to them, talk to them, and decide actually whether they're real or not. And that is something that, you know, it'd be very difficult for a machine to do. And if and Patrick would probably agree with the, the most common questions that patients ask are, what does it mean? Is it relevant? Is it important? What should I do? What does it mean for me? How is it going to affect my life? Those aren't questions that a machine can answer. Only another human can answer those questions. What does it mean in that terms of that person's beliefs or their religion or their race or their primary language or whatever? It's all context. A lot of it is contextual. And patients will come and they'll say, I've looked it up on Google. And at which point you should say, well, if you looked it up on Google, why have you come to see me? Oh, well, I, w I want to know what you think. All oh, right, OK. So there's, there is all that. So it will for some things, but a lot of things it won't do because basically and the other thing as well one thing i would say about anna is that only 20 percent of our health are due to medical interventions the rest of it is the rest of our lives where we live our, what education we've had how much money we've got what we eat how excellent how all those things are not going to be impacted on by an artificial intelligence machine in a doctor's surgery so it's a great question man. and one final thing anna because i'm interested in your point as well is that oh, Often when you, <clears throat> say if you look at something like people with headaches and you do a scan to find out what's wrong, it creates sometimes oh mayhem because it shows up things that you don't know whether it is something wrong or not. And then you have to have other scans and tests. And actually at the end of it, it's not good to do it. So generally for say managing headaches, unless there are clear physical signs of a problem. Absolutely, Patrick. Then doing a scan is actually bad for the person. And in America, because there's perverse incentives to do scans and tests, they get the worst of it. So they come into the A&E and they've got a headache, they get an MRI scan, you know, drop of a hat. But then it might show up one of any number of possible things that might be relevant and they're off on a whole trail that ultimately doesn't help them at all and creates anxiety so you need to have people and I, it's reassuring to you Anna you want to be a doctor I don't think I would be at all worried about technology I, you know I'll, I'll put it out there I'm happy to be proved wrong I'll probably be dead anyway but in my opinion there always is going to need to be doctors no matter what the technology is Yeah, I think in another part of my life, I mean, if we're talking personally and psychologically and mentally, absolutely, parents have a massive role and bringing up children is 
so important that, that, that we have good care and support for families. And I see it over and over and over again in people who present with health problems, severe illness. When you look back and you check through, they've sometimes had really adverse situation in childhood that has a long-term effect on their health. And it even goes before birth, you know? So if mum has a difficult pregnancy and under a lot of stress and things like that, actually shows up later on in their health you can actually show the consequences of you know mum being under a lot of stress during a pregnancy and things like that but for me personally what really struck me at university and medical school was this thing about inequalities in health and there was a particular GP called Julian Tudor Hart um, who wrote a paper in The Lancet about 30 40 years ago now about the inverse care law and when I was at Leicester University Medical School, this was a lecture that we had about man in society and the sociologists were, were referencing this paper and um, it, it really struck me that those with the most health needs are the least likely to get the health care and people with the least health needs are much more able to get it. And in a city like Hull, that rule applies. So Hull's got uh, deprivation and poor um, economic circumstances and it struggles to get enough healthcare people to come and work here. Not, I'm not, not saying that struggle is because of deprivation but it, it's, it shows up in, in difficulties and we've got a very high number of patients per GP in Hull so we need to find ways to address it. That was something that I learned early on that inequality in health are very closely linked and that's through my career that's played out because I've sought to work in areas where there is the most need. So I've worked in the inner city healthcare, I've worked in prison medicine, I've worked in social exclusion and I'm now working in learning disability medicine. I'm kind of drawn to those areas because I feel that the best chance I have of doing my job well and helping and changing people's health lives is to work in the areas where it's most likely to be needed, if that makes sense. Okay, so yes, Chris, so do you believe that this societal inequality in acquiring healthcare is the most pressing health issue? Or do you believe that there are others that are also come quite close? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's kind of, if you extend it globally, inequality is a massive issue across the world. So we, we can look at it in a microcosm. We can look at the micro inequalities in Hull as a city, in the different areas. And you can look at the figures for heart disease and mental health. And everything is linked to inequality and poverty. It'll be much higher. But then if you go across the world, and you look macro, you look at countries that are less well developed and look at their health problems, they're massively higher than ours. Um, you know, so there's a very, it's a global issue. So inequality across the globe, both cultural, um, economic particularly, all of those inequalities play out. And this is where I think the world has got to sort itself out. You know, it's an awful situation in one sense that uh, that there's so much inequality and it's getting worse. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that's a big worry that inequality in the UK is getting worse. But there is a positive side to it in that you can make a difference. And if you start to work and address those inequalities, you can make a massive difference. If you can just change people's circumstances of their life and improve their basic life quality, 
it makes such a big difference to their health. So if I, if I was starting out again, I would be tempted to, to put inequality in health, which I was always interested in, but I might even look at how we can do it on a population basis. So, you know, I don't, I don't know whether I would be better as a politician, probably not, <laughs> but I do see as a challenge it's inequality is oh. absolutely the, the one thing that I would want to change. The other thing as well is that what Patrick talked about a bit earlier, the populations that he works with of what we would call from a medical or a sociological point of view, unmet need. That's what we're dealing with. They've got need that's not being met. If you look at inequality in healthcare, we've got a whole group of people who, if you like, their needs are being overmet because they're being over-investigated, they're being over-treated. Being... So these people that, you know, have got a headache and they can, afford, they, don't, they can afford to have a scan. They don't need one, but they can afford to have it. So we've got inequality in terms of poverty, social exclusion, disadvantage, the political, socio-political aspect of it. We've also got inequality as to, you know, what we're trying to do is to direct the resources to those people who actually need it rather than those people who think they need it and who are asking for it. And that is a real challenge across because if you're going to increase the access for disadvantaged populations to healthcare, you're going to have to reduce it to other people. And that's been a, that's a real so you know if you're talking about over investigation, over treatment, and it's only really been in the last five to ten years I think that the medical profession have twigged onto this in that it's it's hard so to be under doctored is harmful to have over doctoring is also harmful as well so it's getting to the optimum level of doctoring that patients sort of need but the um you know sort of inequality my fear about inequality is that eventually people will stop caring about it and it will just be baked in as something that's natural because if you don't do anything about inequality it gets worse naturally you've got to introduce active policies to fight it and one of the things that we did in Hull was around patients who were being um, routinely admitted to hospital over and over again when they were homeless and you've got to specifically put a project in to stop that happening and you can make differences to people's lives but it ain't going to happen on its own and that would be you know that would be my view on it but yes I think that all medical professionals are the best advocates for establishing mm, equality within healthcare because you can definitely see i'm sure as both of you have seen throughout your entire working life that it is a very very big issue and these policies because i believe that most healthcare professionals definitely will agree with you that it has to change and the system has to change due to all the networking and the fact that the medical community is just one extremely large community it can definitely bring about a difference and a change for the better absolutely change takes time and we i think it's it's so hard to be able to see the inequalities and witness them and and be in some not a part of them but not being able to have the tools necessary to break mm. down those barriers all the time uh, but Anna, my, maybe this is going to be one of the things that you can take forward in your own career is to be able to try and do something about those policies or do something to be able to break down those barriers to bring about further equity in terms of our healthcare system. Dan, I've got an inspirational idea here. I think oh, one of the things. Oh, I know. Hey, go on, well, go on, go on, go on. I, I feel like we should arrange a little bit of like a working lunch or a training session for our medical health and social care academy students to really highlight 
the inequalities of the system or the inequalities in healthcare and the, the impact that that can have on the health of the service users that are out there. I think that might be one of the ways that we might yeah. be able to kind of increase education there as this is a hot topic that's come up on quite a few podcasts that we've raised. Yeah, of course, that'd be a really good idea. I mean, that hymns are quite into teaching about health inequalities as well. So I think they would be up, up for it, certainly. But, well, um, let's bring this to board and make this happen, Dan. Anna, yeah, watch, right. this space. watch this space. <laughs> you, you've got my 100% support on it. I, it absolutely is. I, you know, any, and we do have success. We, you know, I could just, I can give you lots of examples. It's one particular one recently of a, a, a young lad who's got severe, profound, multiple learning disability, uh, who's an asylum seeker. He's had a rough, terrible, rough life in, in, in another country, has come to Hull and the team have really worked hard around him and he's just about to move into a, a home that's adapted for him and his family and the joy of that process and his MP, the city councillor, uh, our team, we've all been campaigning with the Home Office to get him the right support. We made sure he didn't get moved off to Rotherham, which was a worry because that was what was happening. They'd just be uprooted and moved. But people coming together, if you get enough of you, the network, Hull has done this family proud. It makes me proud to be working in Hull to see that happen. And we need more of that. And, and it's, it's, it's just what keeps you going when you see that. And particularly when you see the change in the person's health because of those little differences. And, and, the, and the fascinating thing is the community that gets fed back positively. So you put something into a family and help them and they grow, they come back and they put 10 times more into the community from what you put in. It's, it's like a, a multiplier, you know, that pay it forward film. You pay stuff forward and, and it gets paid forward again. You know, you, you, that is the wonderful thing. So on, on the big scale, I don't want to get you all depressed about how awful the situation is. It is. We've got to recognise it, admit it. But on the small scale here in the whole, we can make a big, big difference. And then those lessons can be shared. Thank you. What, what advice would I give to who? Sorry, Anna, I missed the first bit. I think to my prospective medicine students, for example. What advice? I, I know this is probably the question that I didn't get to see because of my laptop. <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're not putting you on the spot here, Patrick, but you've no, got no, lots too. of golden nuggets of information. And I think like yeah. if we aimed to list all of the different experiences that you've had in Hull, I mean, we've touched on the fact that you're obviously the Hull prison doctor for quite some time. You're now working with learning disabilities. You'd previously worked in other areas. Um, and I think all of that has given you some really clear insight into what it is to be able to go into a healthcare profession, but also what it means to be able to become a doctor. So thinking of all of that wealth of experience that you've come through, we haven't even mentioned the whole medical society yet. No, and I had thought about, I'd forgotten that I'd forgotten about it. I am getting on, you know, and I do still I had considered this question now. And I think I'll come back to to my own personal experience. What advice I would give is around asking for help and not being frightened to 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 seek advice and support. So as as going through my career, I made the mistake, and, and many men do as well. I think it's more of a man thing, is that you're kind of a bit ashamed of asking for help. And you think that if you ask questions, you might be seen not to be uh, knowledgeable or to not be have have the have the but actually as a doctor and working 
through my career, I found that the people who ask questions are, the, are, are absolutely the best people. And they, they, they often have a, a, a misconception of their own knowledge so that they think they don't know things, but actually they do. And it's strange. So my advice to people is if, if I was going to give any to career doctors wanting to do this as a career, is to look for being honest and open about questions and if you think you don't know something and you might feel a bit ashamed about it just go and ask for advice absolutely do not hold on to these things in your head and worry about them because there's no need there's so many fabulous people and i've worked with hymns in the medical school and they have a great reputation for supporting students who come with worries and anxieties things go wrong with their family or they just find studying some particular aspect of the study difficult it's so so important not to feel bad about that and and to absolutely just go and, and fess up <laughs> to use a, a, a good word fess up be honest open say look i am just finding this so difficult i just don't get it you know and you will get a good welcome you know and, I, and that's my advice because i wish i had done that i've too often felt that asking for help wasn't a good thing and what I've found, and, and you mentioned the medical society, which I've been part of, is the, the support that I've got through colleagues in the medical society and who are asking for help from them. You know, I don't care. I go and say, Look, I don't have a clue about this. <laughs> what should we be doing? You know, and they come in and they, they help, you know, and, and it's nothing to be ashamed of because medicine's so vast. You can't begin to know it all. And the key is knowing when you don't know something and being able to say, I don't know, I really don't. And instead of kind of making a guess, just ask for help. I mean, I think that this is a key piece of information, particularly as we enter nearer exam season and things like that, uh, that even as we are learning some of those key things in preparation for those exams, being able to identify the areas that you are unsure about and then being confident enough to be able to ask for help can really and ultimately make such a big difference to the overall outcome. So listeners out there that are currently preparing for some of those A-levels <laughs> or our previous alumni preparing for some of those professional exams as well ask for help yeah can i just give a very quick piece of advice that's just popped into my head Anna. you know whenever you sometimes you go places and it says could the user please leave this in the state that they found it i think that whenever you come across somebody you should leave them in a better mental state than you found them in so as judge what sort of mental state they're in and don't make it worse if at all possible make it a bit better and particularly from a medic being a you know a doctor or a carer or a therapist or whatever it is you sometimes see people and who they want to cause problems or want to cause hassle or want to upset people or whatever it's just a terrible thing to do if someone's sad try and make them a little bit happier if someone you know has got something on their mind try to ease it a little bit but just try and make that don't leave that person in the worst state than you found them because that is not really Thank you, Dan, and, and thanks, Anna. Uh, you know, I'd, I'm sorry if, if I wasn't fully prepared, but I had actually prepared for that. And you know, do do ask for help. 
yeah. no such thing as a daft question. No, not at all. And, and when people come up after a talk or a, a class and ask questions, I always feel that that is fabulous and so good that people want to know. And I like smaller groups. When I was at medical school, that's one of the reasons I went to Leicester, is they had smaller groups. And in hymns, they've got these small problem-based groups, which mm-hmm. I think is a really good uh, system, you know, and I like that. That would have suited me. I think if, I, if I'd had the chance to go to Hull, I would have wanted that problem-based small group learning, you know, and, and it's part of it. You don't, have that dream, you don't have that dream anymore, Patrick, do you, when you've gone back to medical school? I sometimes have that. I used to have that for years where you sort of had to go back and do it all over again. So, no, I don't, I don't have that nightmare, no. <laughs> we could go to Hull. We could go to Hymns instead, couldn't we? I loved it at medical school, but yeah. I you know, I do. I like it being a doctor now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel for you guys. I'm sorry. But I'm doing an exam now. I'm just doing the learning disability medicine course. It's the first one there's ever been. It's at Keele, oh, no, nice. Edge Hill University. And we've got a proper master's-based level learning. I'm thrilled. So I'm doing CBDs, case-based discussions. Oh, nice. Mini- mini hexes or something like that mini x mini x's where somebody looks at you and monitors you so it's like being back at medical school again (laughs) reflective essays Ah well for the our listeners out there we previously had a podcast to be able to help support and consider learning disability nursing at Hull University as well so it's a great opportunity to be able to get involved and try to be able to really make a difference in people's lives so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you both for joining us as our guests for today yes, and Dan you. always thank a pleasure you. thanks everybody thanks Patrick <laughs> nice to see you again Anna nice to see you too thanks. and keep listening thanks. everybody thanks Anna for being a fabulous interviewer and good luck with your career yeah thank you Likewise. thanks Patrick see you soon cheers bye cheers.